Father, we love you and we love your word and we ask that you would forgive us of the pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency with which we can sometimes come to your word. Pray that you give us humble hearts now, that we would truly know that we are entirely dependent upon your grace through the work of the Holy Spirit to understand and believe and apply your word. Please give us eyes to see your glory and the power of the gospel through this text. And we ask all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. If you would please take out your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We continue in our series through the book of 2 Samuel and we find ourselves this morning in what really is the turning point of the book. It is everything that happens in the rest of David's life basically flows out of what happens in our passage. And given the importance of David's life and the overarching storyline of the Bible, or the role that King David plays in redemptive history, I don't think then that it's an overstatement to say that our passage this morning is one of the most significant portions of scripture in the entire Bible. And not only because of what happens, but also because of everything that it points to. But before we get into all that, let's just quickly recap what we covered last time from chapter 11, just to make sure we're all on the same page here. Uh, king David, by this time firmly entrenched as the king of all of God's people, uh, he is a king marked by righteousness and justice, walked closely with his God, but it's that King David who tragically commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. In spite of the many wives that he already has, in spite of the fact that she's married to one of his most loyal soldiers, in spite of the consequences of adultery in God's law that he's well aware of, David takes Bathsheba for himself. But what happens in the palace ought to stay in the palace, well, until it turns out that she is pregnant. And that then leads to all kinds of attempts at covering up the sin, ultimately culminating, of course, in the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. David basically commands Joab, his military general, to put Uriah in a position where the Ammonites would surely kill him. And that plan works to a T. Uriah is killed in battle, seemingly just another tragic casualty of war. And then David takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. And so as chapter 11 draws to a close, like it sure seems like David's gotten away with it. Like the only two living people who know, really know what happened, are David and Bathsheba. And Bathsheba's got as much incentive to keep quiet as David does. So 26 and a half verses into chapter 11, like humanly speaking, David has gotten away with it. God's not even mentioned anywhere in the chapter. But then there's that ominous final sentence, right? that last little half verse, uh, one that retrospectively hangs over the rest of the chapter like a dark cloud. Look again at verse 27. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
the narrator abruptly reminds us that even though God's been conspicuously absent in this chapter, like he knows exactly what's going on. And so as we move into chapter 12, just imagine that you've never read this before. Like you have no idea how this is going to turn out. We should be wondering, like, what is going to happen to David? The thing that David did displeased the Lord. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. So now what's going to happen to David? Is the Lord going to strike him dead? Is he done as the king of Israel? Is he about to go the way of his predecessor, King Saul? Well, that brings us to chapter 11, verse 1. Remember that the chapter breaks are not inspired. And so maybe it's helpful for us if we would just read it through continuously from the last sentence in chapter 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Let's stop right there, lest we miss the significance of that introductory sentence. You may have noticed when we cover chapter 11, kind of skim your eyes through it real quick, uh, there's a lot of sending, a lot of sending going on in that narrative. Like David sends and Bathsheba sends and Joab sends all kinds of messages and messengers, much of it to accomplish great evil. But now as we turn to chapter 12, where God's about to take over, he's been silent long enough, it is now his turn to do the sending. And he's sending precisely because of his great displeasure over all the evil that's been done. So he sends, verse 1, Nathan the prophet. Now Nathan the prophet, we know him from chapter 7. There God sends Nathan to tell David of all of God's wonderful, magnificent, uh, jaw-dropping promises, his covenant promises. This sending is going to be a little different because this sending is not about revealing great promises. This sending is about revealing great sin. Like all that stuff that David thought was hidden in the darkness, God's about to turn all the lights on. Look as I read verses 1 through 4. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now that story that Nathan tells there, it's a scenario that probably is not all that dissimilar from other cases that David as the highest human court in the land as the king that David had previously judged on and ruled on. But this isn't an actual case. No, this is a a fictional story that's meant to provoke a reaction in David. Uh, Though he himself has no idea of that, at least for now. 
It's a story about two men. Two men who are portrayed as being vastly different. Right? One is called the rich man. And the other guy is called the poor man. The rich man, he's got many flocks and herds. The poor man has nothing but one little ewe lamb. And so the contrast is as stark as it can be. And we're told that to the poor man, this one little lamb that he owns, it's not just like any livestock. He cares for it dearly. You remember how David, the chesed showing king, how he took Mephibosheth in as a son? Well, verse 3 tells us that to this poor man, the lamb was like a daughter. And so it used to eat the man's own food. A drink from the man's own cup. Lie in his arms. But the story takes a turn when the rich man needs a lamb to slaughter for a guest. But he doesn't want to sacrifice one of his own. Whether it's out of greed or maybe it's just convenience or what, we don't know. But he takes the lamb, the one lamb, from the poor man. Doesn't matter how rich the man is. Doesn't matter how poor the poor man is. It doesn't matter how dear the lamb is to the poor man. Doesn't matter to the rich man that he's got everything and the poor man's got nothing. He cold-heartedly takes the poor man's one precious possession. Now this story is obviously, at least it should be obvious to us, this is obviously about David and Uriah and Bathsheba. David is the rich man. He's got everything. Uriah is the poor man. Bathsheba is the lamb, uh, the precious possession of the poor man. Now those parallels are, are obvious. They jump right off the page at us. But there's even some very subtle parallels that we might miss if we're just a little bit too hasty. For example, we're told that the rich man, look at verse 4, the rich man took the poor man's lamb. And if you look back at chapter 11, verse 4, David sent messengers and took Bathsheba. That's the exact same word. And look at the three things that the lamb is said to have done in the poor man's home. Verse 3 of chapter 12. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. Eat, drink, lie. You remember what Uriah said to David when he, in integrity and uprightness and honor, when he refused to go along with David's evil plans? Back at chapter 11, verse 11. Uriah says, shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie? It's exact same three words. And so the parallels are everywhere, right? both obvious and subtle. Now we see that right away. We have the benefit of chapter 12 directly following chapter 11. And so we see it right away. And maybe a more spiritually sensitive David, the man after God's own heart, Maybe a more spiritually sensitive David would have caught on to it, even though for him, something like nine months is separating the two events. But in his hardened and calloused state, like in his current state of rebellion and covering his sin and ignoring his conscience, he just completely misses the connection. So look at how he responds, verses five and six. 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Now notice that Nathan doesn't get to finish his story. Presumably, he would have ended with something like, O king, what is your verdict? What do you think should be done? But he doesn't even get to finish. He doesn't get to ask David for a judgment. David, with his anger greatly kindled at this fictional character, he just interjects with his verdict. And the verdict is a fascinating one. Look at what he says. As the Lord lives, says the man who in the previous chapter lived as if there was no God. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now we can see why David gets so passionate, why he gets so angry here. The rich man just heartlessly took advantage of this poor man. He stole from him. Like this story is meant to provoke anger. Wait a minute. He deserves to die? Technically speaking, according to the law of God that was given to Israel, does the rich man deserve to die? The answer is no. He's guilty of theft. And so according to the law, specifically theft of a lamb, Exodus 22.1, his penalty should be fourfold restitution. Which David is... One who knows the law. You see how he tacks that on to the death penalty in verse 6? But the death penalty, under the law of Moses, the death penalty was reserved only for certain capital crimes. Capital crimes like adultery and murder. But David's playing the part here of the king of righteousness and justice. And he's all too ready to dispense some serious justice here on this wicked rich man. The punishment that far exceeds what the law demands. And most of us in this room know exactly what's going to happen next. Nathan is getting ready here to, to deliver the, the knockout blow. Let's not rush to the destination and just kind of breeze by this powerful illustration we have here of what unrepentant sin can do in the hearts of men. Even in the hearts of men after God's own heart. Unrepentant sin. A sin that we refuse to acknowledge in ourselves. Like the ones that David's still clinging on to here. The beginning of chapter 12. It can make us into mighty, ready, and willing judges of the sins of others. Maybe it's for the sake of deflecting his own sin. Maybe it's so he can ignore the guilt of his own conscience. Or maybe his rebellions just made him completely like irrational in his hypocrisy. But David's got 20-20 vision and seeing the specks in the eyes of others like this fictional rich man, even as he ignores the logs that are in his own. This isn't just David's problem. It's a problem for all sinners. It's a problem for me and you. 
where we can be so quick to see the faults of others, so eager to point out the sins that they commit, and so enraged by the injustice of the things that they do, while at the same time being completely calloused and indifferent, and yet it's not a big deal towards our own sin. And hand in hand with that is the fact that we demand nothing but justice for others while pleading nothing but mercy for ourselves. Friends, realizing, acknowledging the inclination and tendency of our hearts to do exactly that, that's the first step in being on guard against a hypercritical spirit towards others and a lack of meaningful self-examination in ourselves. But going back to David here, he serves us as a powerful illustration. A powerful illustration of the hypocrisy that's often an inevitable byproduct of unrepentant sin. Like his own adultery and his own murder, sins that really deserve death, his own taking of another man's wife and his own taking of another man's life, he's all too willing to keep that hidden. But the rich man's taking of a lamb, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now at the height of his hypocrisy, the sword that he was going to use to slay that rich man is about to be turned to pierce his own heart. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. The rich man, the guy who stole everything, oh sorry, who had everything but stole from the man who had nothing. David, that's you. The man that you just brought judgment upon, the man that you yourself said deserves to die, and David, that's you. We can just picture in our mind's eye. David's eye is getting big, his tongue completely frozen as he realizes that he has just ensnared himself. Nathan continues. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Basically, you went from being a nobody, a nobody shepherd boy, like when Samuel went to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, your family didn't even think you were a possibility. They had to call you in from the field. You were a nobody. And you became the great king of Israel. And over and over in that process, God protected you from Saul and God gave you everything. You prospered in every way. Basically, this is God telling David, I gave you all that you needed. I gave you all that you wanted. And yet, you were not satisfied. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So now we go from the general parallels from Nathan's story to David's life, right? Like you are the man. Do you know specific crimes that David has committed before a holy God? That God turns the lights up to maximum brightness. He brings everything that was hidden, that was in the darkness, now to light. Specific crimes like you have struck down Uriah the Hittite. Yeah, technically speaking, it was the Ammonites that did your dirty work. But ultimately, it was you, David, who killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And specific crimes, like you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Again, just like in chapter 11, it's not Bathsheba that you have taken. It's the wife of Uriah the Hittite that you have taken. David, you thought your sin was hidden. You thought you had gotten away with everything. But David, I know everything. And your sin is going to have consequences. And we're going to talk more about those consequences in the weeks to come. They are some serious, life-changing tragic consequences. David is going to reap what he sows. And the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is basically about how that plays out. Like when David said to Joab in chapter 11, the sword devours now one and now another, like in reference to the murder that he committed, well that saying is now going to apply tragically enough to his own family. The sword is going to devour many of his own sons. Now therefore the sword shall not depart from your house. And the adultery, the taking of another man's wife that he committed so brazenly, well now even more brazenly, more openly, more publicly, your wives are going to be taken and that's going to be fulfilled with what Absalom does later on in his rebellion. But as horrific as all of those things would have sounded in David's ears, there's one more accusation against David that's worse than the rest. Because it's the basis for all of the rest of the evil that David commits. And God puts it three different ways here. He says the same thing three different times to David. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Then in the middle of verse 10, you have despised me. In verse 14, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. By his sin, by his adultery and murder, David has despised God and his word. 
The same guy who would write Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I love you, O Lord. Here he has utterly scorned the Lord. He has despised him. The same guy who would write Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The same guy who would write Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. Like emphasizing over and over and over how much he loves the word of God. That same David here has despised the word of the Lord. And thus has despised the Lord himself. For a man, truly after God's own heart, how heartbreaking that must have been to hear. You have despised me. And break his heart it does. As we see the the walls that David built around his heart and heart for the last nine months, they begin to come tumbling down like those of Jericho. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You have despised me. I have sinned against the Lord. We'll talk much more about that repentance next week. I have sinned against the Lord. All that that entails. For now, let me leave you with three overarching takeaways from from our passage this morning. Takeaway number one is that God's justice is perfect. God's justice is perfect. As chapter 11 finishes, again, if it wasn't for that last half verse, That last sentence in verse 27, I mean, David's clean. He's good. Like, humanly speaking, he's got every base covered. He's got every I dotted. He's got every T crossed in terms of the cover-up. He is in the clear. But, we must never forget this truth. And it's the truth that comes out so clearly in chapter 12 that regardless of what man sees, regardless of what man knows, regardless of how we're judged in any human sense, in any human court, God's justice is always perfect. God judges all sin perfectly. That's bad news for us. That's bad news for us because we are all sinners. And the Bible clearly says that it is appointed unto man to die once and after that comes judgment. Here's the thing. In that judgment, if an omniscient, all-knowing, all-seeing God brings our sins against us, like we would literally have no defense. We've been using certain standards to judge others our whole lives, like David with this rich man. And so we can't claim ignorance about the concept of judgment. Now we're going to be like David here. When he hears those words, you are the man. He's trapped by our own judgments. 
absolutely no words of response. And no defense, no plea before a holy God, naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Our own consciences testifying against us of all the wrong that we've done. Our own consciences pointing and screaming, as the Lord lives, the man who has done these things deserves to die. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Because takeaway number one, God's justice is perfect. If you're thinking right now, well, I'm not a horrible sinner like David. This doesn't really apply to me, this whole judgment thing. I've never committed adultery and murder. Well, I remind you of what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. Never committed adultery? You do well, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you've never committed murder. You do well, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Guilty and guilty. Every sin will be judged. And takeaway number one, God's justice is always perfect. Which brings us now to takeaway number two, and that is that God pursues his people. Takeaway number two, God pursues his people. Here's a hypothetical to think about. What would have happened? What would have happened if God had just left David to himself? Like if God let him have exactly what he wanted at the end of chapter 11. For a sin to be hidden forever. Just imagine if the story of David went that way. With David getting away with his sin and pursuing greater and greater and greater sin because you know how sin can so easily snowball. And his heart hardening more and more and more against God all the way to his death, ultimately ending in total apostasy. And then David receiving the just judgment of his sin an eternity in hell. But that, of course, is not what happens with David. Because that's not what happens here in 2 Samuel 12. Because God does not just let his people eternally destroy themselves in their sin. No, God pursues. He goes after. He chases after his people. And here in our narrative, that's crystal clear all the way back in verse 1. When God sends Nathan to expose David's sin. See, this story is not really about brave, courageous Nathan confronting King David on his sin, although that is true on some level. No, this story is ultimately about God pursuing his child. God pursuing David by bringing David's sin to light through his mouthpiece, Nathan. I love how clearly Nathan puts it in verse 7. It's not about him. It's thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This chapter is all about God 
pursuing a sinner in his sin, not leaving him to himself, not leaving him to his own desires, not leaving him to perish. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the difference between King David and King Saul. Uh, They both commit egregious sins. There's a lot of striking similarities. There's also a lot of differences. But don't get it twisted. The difference between David and Saul isn't primarily that David is a more virtuous and godly and sincere man. No, the difference between these two men, the difference between David and Saul, ultimately culminating in their different destinies, is that the hound of heaven chases down David in his sin, grants him true repentance, while he doesn't do that for Saul, but instead leaves him in his sin. The difference is that God disciplines his child, David. God treats him as a son, that he might ultimately share in his holiness, while Saul is left without discipline and shown to be an illegitimate child. It's not really that David is more virtuous or godly or sincere. It really has nothing to do with David's inherent qualities at all. Because both David and Saul deserve nothing but judgment as a result of their rebellion. Both David and Saul deserve to be left in their sin against God. It's just that God chooses to pursue David. Takeaway number two, God pursues his people. So brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you need to know this. You need to believe this. You need to trust this, that this is the kind of God that we have. A God who does not give up on his children. A God who goes after wayward sons and daughters even in the darkest moments of their rebellion. A God who doesn't allow us to remain in our sin. A God who does not leave us content in our rebellion. A God who rejoices to gift his people with true repentance when they sin against him, even in grievous ways. And a God who can thus guarantee his children, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. Not because of our pursuit of him, but because of his pursuit of us. A God who can guarantee that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, the fact is that if our making it to the end depended primarily on our pursuit of him, like the steadfastness of our love, every single one of us would be without hope. But he, our covenant God, loves his people with an everlasting love. Oh, love that will not let me go. It's a love that will not let us go even in the darkest of moments when we seemingly want nothing to do with him. He, the hound of heaven, pursues his people to keep them all to the end. Takeaway number two, God pursues his people. Now, if you've been paying close attention, you'll know that we have a problem. 
Because takeaway number one is that God's justice is perfect. Takeaway number two is that God pursues his people. And so we have a seeming contradiction now. Because how can it be that the holy God who must judge all sin perfectly, how can that God then pursue sinners like us? Even if he does pursue us. And he grants us repentance. Like, don't we still deserve judgment? Which brings us to takeaway number three. Which is that the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. David, King David, as a result of what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah, David deserves to die. He said so himself. Remember his own judgment. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this, referring to a fictitious man whose fictitious crime was much less egregious than his, the man who has done this deserves to die. But David, if you are the man, if that story's about you, well, then it's you, David, who deserves to die. You said it yourself. And so as the highest human judge in the nation, he has pronounced death on himself. David deserves to die. And even more importantly, right, the divine judge of the nation, the Lord God of Israel, he has specified in his word what should happen to adulterers and murderers. They deserve to die. Even with his repentance, I have sinned against the Lord. Even if it's the most genuine, heartfelt sorrow in the history of mankind, it still can't undo what he has already done. The toothpaste is out of the tube. David deserves to die. And we can keep piling on here. Because you remember God's primary charge against David? Despising the Lord? You know there's only one other person, or two persons, I should say, who are said to have despised the Lord in the books of Samuel? And it's not a pretty comparison. Now, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you remember those sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas? Those two worthless men who exploited the people and treated the offering of the Lord with contempt? Well, listen to what God says about them in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me. Those who despise me, that's Hophni, that's Phinehas, that's Eli their father. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed, and so they are justly struck dead. Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, on the same day, in judgment for despising the Lord. And so on three counts, right, number one, based on his own judgment in response to Nathan's story, Number two, based on the law of Moses, right, the very word of God. And number three, based on the precedent in the books of Samuel, David deserves to die. The wages of sin is death. A sin equals death. That's just how it's supposed to be. David must die. Not just physically, 
But also, because his sin separates him from a holy God, David must die eternally. Which is why what Nathan says in response to David is the most amazing, absurd, unimaginable line in the entire book. Verse 13, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. The gospel that says that we all, like David, because of our sin against the holy God, we deserve to die. It could be said of every single person in this room, because of the sins that we've committed, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. You deserve to die. You deserve to die. I deserve to die. We all deserve to die. Again, not only in terms of physical death, but also eternally in hell, suffering conscious punishment for our sins. But now let Nathan's words ring in your ears like you're hearing them for the very, very first time. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord puts away our sin by instead putting it on his son Jesus in our place. He takes the sin that we've committed and in exchange, he gives us his perfect righteousness. And so Jesus is punished. Jesus suffers death. Jesus suffers the wrath of God that our sin deserves. And we go free. And we don't have to die an eternity in hell because Jesus has died in our place on the cross. Our friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel that David looked forward to, and so the Lord passed over his sins. That's the gospel that stands to save you today if you would put your trust in the same Christ. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Takeaway number three, the gospel is of first importance. We deserve to die before a holy God who judges perfectly, we stand condemned. As the Lord lives, the man who, does, who did these things deserves to die. But our short condemnation is then replaced by hope, an eternal hope. Why? Because the God who pursues his people with a love that will not let us go has promised in his word, has promised in Christ that the Lord has put away your sin you shall not die. And if he loves us so, with that love that will not let us go, well, can we not trust him on that? Let's pray. Father, how glorious is the gospel of your son. How unfathomable that a holy God who must judge sin would put away our sin by putting it on his only beloved son. Father, let us never take that truth for granted. Let our love for that truth never die. 
Let our trust in that truth never fade. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.